lecture of this series, Dr. Truman promises that things are going to start looking better as he talks. We've been going downhill, 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 down. We're going to come up and find the solution to all the problems that is the world. Is that correct, Dr. Truman? If you find your way back to your seats, Truman, they're all yours. Okay, well, having laid out all of the uh, problems, I want to offer some possible responses. Clearly, the, the durable narrative that I've told is a somewhat depressing one, partly because there's clearly no single silver bullet. It's not a question of, well, here's the problem, and this is the, the argument, or this is the one thing we need to do to set it right. When we're talking about the way that social imaginary, the way people intuitively think about the world, has been so dramatically shaped by a whole variety of forces over which no single person or no single organization exerts any kind of decisive control. It is impossible to come up with a simple solution. I also think that we need to accept as churches that the the last vestiges of a social imaginary that were shaped at some level by Christian intuitions or by Christianity are rapidly vanishing. So those of us whose imagination, imaginary is somehow informed by Christianity do find ourselves uh, uh, in an increasingly strange and alien environment. I think also the capacity for Christians uh, running away from the challenges uh, is rapidly diminishing. Uh, it's amazing how uh, when I've given versions of this talk, a lot of these talks over the last six months, almost every church I speak at, I chat to some family that's been affected by LGBTQ stuff, or that kind of thing. Uh, it's something that is encroaching on the lives of, of everybody. And I think, you know, if, you're, if your children have smartphones, then it's already there. Uh, so it's not something that we're able to avoid. So how should we respond to it? Well, the first thing, the first line of response I would suggest is, uh, it's important to understand our own complicity in this. I mentioned uh, last night that when Rousseau was writing his works, Jonathan Edwards is writing Religious Affections. Uh, and that is uh, to say that you know, the inner space is important, it does exist. But there are problems with the way that that inner space is played out in modern society, and the church is not immune to those problems. I've already talked about the problem of religious freedom this evening. Not that I think religious freedom is a bad thing. Uh, I think it is better than any of the alternatives. But I think it brings certain risks and dangers and ways of imagining the world with it that are problematic. Very struck by the comment that Philip Reeve, the 
philosophical sociologist, made in his very important book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, he said, in the Middle Ages, nobody went to church to be made to feel happy. They went to church to have their misery explained to them. Uh, that's a rather dramatic way of putting it. But it cuts close to the quick, doesn't it? Uh, I don't know how the Bible Presbyterians are. I do it in the OPC. We're, we're good on misery, actually. Uh, uh, people do come to the OPC uh, 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 to be made to feel miserable. That's my belief. But anyway, yeah, I remember when I was pastoring a church and we, we grew to more than 100 people on a Sunday morning and one of my colleagues in Presbytery jokingly asked me, okay, so which doctrine are you soft-pedaling on? Seriously. We all, I think, intuitively go to church to be made to feel good today. That's how we think about church, all of us. Prayers, personal corporate, tend to focus on the alleviation of misery rather than on bearing it and coming to understand it. Now that's not to say that prayers for the alleviation of misery are wrong at all. But that's generally all there is. And that's true. Whatever type of church we go to. I would also say that often we tend to go to churches where the worship, the style, makes us feel good. And that's not a crack at uh, contemporary worship services at all. Uh, there are those of us who like traditional worship because it appeals to us. We might give biblical rationales for it, but I know that if I were to do that, I also have to be honest and say, I'd rather sing hymns and choruses. I just prefer hymns. Maybe I'm overstating things, but I think most of us, if we're honest, would have to admit that our choice of church is not entirely driven by theological conviction. But it's partly, at least, driven by a tendency towards a kind of expressive individualism and a therapeutic view of the self. I think the church has often become rather committed to the cult of personal happiness. There's nothing wrong with being happy, of course. What's interesting is that the model of happiness with which Christians often operate today is that of an inner sense of psychological well-being, which is the expressive individual way of thinking about happiness. When you think in those terms, then Paul's vision of ministry as laid out in 2 Corinthians is incomprehensible. And Paul's relativizing his sufferings relative to the glory that is to come are incomprehensible. There are other areas, I think, of Christian complicity in this culture as well. How many churches have taken a firm stand on no-fault divorce? Can't elaborate the argument here, but I would say the concept of marriage that lies at the heart of no-fault divorce is almost exactly the same concept of marriage that lies at the heart of gay marriage. 
Churches were very outspoken on the latter and virtually silent on the former. Without wanting to say, well, this may put it in a rather controversial way, I don't mean it in quite the way I'm expressing it, but I might express some sympathy for a gay couple who get rather upset at churches that sat so lightly on divorce, refusing to allow them to get married. I can at least see the logic of their arguments at that point, even if I don't agree with it. How we can address these things is not easy. But I want to suggest a couple of things. First of all, I think the church needs to repent in these areas. We need to repent of our complicity in the broader culture. Secondly, I think an awareness of our complicity should cultivate a level of humility in how we engage with those with whom we disagree on these matters. Uh, the Pharisee's prayer, I thank you all that I'm not like other men. The antidote to that is understanding how complicit we are with other men in what has gone on in our world. And even though we're not able to airlift ourselves out of this culture, I do think that once we're aware of the culture, self-policing becomes at least more of a possibility. Once we become aware of these ways that the culture shapes even the Christian imagination, we're able to pick up on it in a way that perhaps we weren't in the past. I think there is no ultimate easy answer, but perhaps members taking their membership vows as seriously as they expect their ministers to take their ordination vows would be a start. Uh, because they're all vows. Uh, it's always interested me the trivial reasons people will break membership vows. They would never tolerate a minister breaking his ordination vows. The content of those vows is different, and ministers are rightly held to a more elaborate and exacting standard. But a vow is a vow. A membership vow is as solemn and as binding as an ordination vow. So that's my first point then. Be aware and take steps to repent and do better, if I can put it that way. Secondly, I think learning from history is a good thing. It's very interesting that as the position of the church in Western culture, particularly in America, is dramatically changing in a very, very short period of time, uh, I've been observing on all sides of the, the Christian uh, world uh, a reflection on the past comes the fall. Uh, a lot of Protestants seem to be attracted to forms of theonomy or reconstruction, uh, wanting to go back to some putative Reformation kind of a settlement where the reformers uh, really did call the shots within the broader culture as a whole. I've noticed the Catholics have a very similar kind of movement, integralism. Catholics don't want to go back to the 16th century, though, they want to go back to the 13th century. Uh, I find neither the 16th nor the 13th century particularly appealing, uh, but I also find them highly implausible as models for today. Uh, we're simply not going to have a situation in America where the Calvins of our day were having global civil magistrate. Uh, as I've said to a number of theonomists over the years, I'll start to take you seriously when you deliver me a single Supreme Court justice. There are no 
conservative Protestant Supreme Court justices. If you can't deliver up a senior judge in the nation committed to your confessional position, you're not taking over the country for Jesus anytime soon. Just in your mouth. I think the historical analogue, to the extent that there is one, is not the 16th century, nor is it the 13th century. I think it's the 2nd century. And like all analogies, it's not a precise one. The whole point of an analogy is that there are always differences. But I think the 2nd century offers some interesting precedents to today. In the 2nd century, the church... Well, let's do the difference first. In the 2nd century, the church was working against the background of a culture that had never known Christianity. We are working against the background of a culture that has known Christianity and is in the process of dramatically repudiating. So there is a big difference. Having noted the difference though, there are some similarities. And the first similarity I think is this. Christianity was little understood, despised, marginal sect. That's a similarity with the second century. Christianity was in a position of great cultural weakness and was misunderstood by the powers that be and was on the margins. Second is the reasons for that marginalization actually correlate with what we're experiencing today. The church in the second century was marginal partly because it was suspected of being immoral, promoting teachings that were against the common good, that is exactly what the faithful Christian church is doing today, relative to sexual morality. It is, you know, when, when Christians teach uh, biblical sexual morality, they are not seen by the wider world as simply teaching something that is wrong. They are seen as teaching something that harms the common good. They are seen as teaching something that is immoral. Secondly, Christians are seen as, were seen in the ancient church as seditious. Jesus is Lord sounds like an insult to Caesar. If you're worshipping Jesus as king, then where does Caesar fit into the picture? Again, I think Christianity is being increasingly labelled as a subversive and damaging force within society. So there are some significant parallels between the second century and our day. What can we learn then? How did the second century church respond? Well, first of all, it's very clear from the New Testament and from early non-canonical texts, one of them, the teaching of the Twelve or the Didache, may have been written as early as uh, AD 70, might have been written before the last of the New Testament documents. Impossible to date with precision, but very, very early. What's very clear from these texts is that community was central to church life. The Acts of the Apostles sets forth a picture of the church whereby it cared for people. The Didache, the teaching of the Twelve, sets forth a set of moral prescriptions by which the church was to organise itself and to care for people. That's important. Remember what I said in the last lecture about freedom and belonging? Underlying that is a notion of identity that sees identity as very much formed 
in dialogue with the world around. Identity is very much formed by community. If I were to say to you, who are you? You're probably not going to give me your blood group or your genome. You're going to talk about the relationships you have. I might say about myself, well, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a teacher, I'm an employee, I'm an Englishman, I like this sport. My identity is grounded in all of the communities to which I see myself belonging. And the strongest identity I have, or the strongest identity I have, come from the strongest social community bonds that I have. I am an employee of Grove City College, but that's less part of my identity than being a husband and a father. I can change my place of employment, and I have done on numerous occasions. My relationship with my wife and my children, that's a non-negotiable fixed thing. The strongest identities people have derive from the strongest relationships they have. The church needs to be a strong community. If the problem we face, we say the LGBTQ movement, is not simply a moral problem of, oh, well, these people are engaging in behaviour of which we disapprove, but is, as I've sort of been hinting and pushing towards in these lectures, it's also a problem of identity, then the solution can't simply be teaching about why this stuff is wrong. It has to be, this is the true community to which you need to belong. Jesus himself says, does he not? By this will all men know you, my disciples, by the love you have for each other. Community will be a powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel that you believe and proclaim. So, I think community is important, and I would ironically say, yeah, we can learn a lot from the LGBT community on this one. Stonewall riots, the late 1960s, the LGBTQ movement didn't even exist in its present form then. Now it is arguably the most powerful cultural force in the West, if not worldwide. Walking through the streets of Georgetown uh, during Pride Month uh, in DC, my wife and I were, uh, were struck by the number of Pride flags. Far more Pride flags than American flags. I was proud, Georgetown tobacco. I don't smoke my pipe very often, but if I do, it's full of tobacco from Georgetown tobacco. I was proud of the guys there. It's the one shop that didn't have a proud Pride flag. You can rely on the tobacco that's to hold them. <laughs> Well, in part, very clever political organizing. But another part of the story is they were a community. They were a powerful community. If you read Rosario Butterfield's book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, one of the interesting things that emerges in that book is what a powerful community she belonged to. And one of the shocking things in that book is she said, yeah, when I converted to Christianity, I assumed the church would be just as strong a community. But it wasn't. Church needs to think about being a community. And that brings me to the second lesson we might learn from the early church. A community, I think, may well look different depending on where you are. 
I think community in rural western Pennsylvania for a church will look different to community in Seattle or Tacoma or Manhattan. I don't think we can sort of grab hold of one model of what church community looks like and say every church needs to be engaged in these things. But I think there are certain commonalities we can pull together. Gathering on the Lord's day, praying, singing God's praise, hearing the word read and preached, celebrating baptism on the Lord's Supper, giving to the church's work. These are all things that the church should do. They're all part of what constitutes us as a community. As going to the ball game and cheering for the team makes you part of the sports team you support community. So being the church, week by week, makes you part of the church's community. I don't think we can reduce it simply to that. But it can never be less than that. It has to focus, I think, on that. Many Christians talk of engaging the culture. I think I know what they mean. And I think often it means something legitimate. <coughs> I mean, we need to witness to the culture. But I think our culture is most dramatically engaged today by the church presenting that culture with itself as a culture. It's one of my colleagues, former colleagues at Grove City used to say, the church does not engage culture, the church is a culture. It's a form of community rooted in liturgical worship practices and manifested in loving community that exists both in and beyond the worship service. Many talk of culture war, and I think, again, the Bible uses martial language. I'm not averse to the language of culture war. I find it communicates less and less positively to the kids between 18 and 22. I spent my life teaching. And so I've been trying to encourage them to think about the church as cultural protest. The church can engage in cultural protest without beating anybody up. The church engages in cultural protest by being an alternative culture, by walking to the beat of a different drum, by convicting the world, by showing it that there is something better, by giving it a vision of what it means to be a true human being. Again, if what I've been saying in these lectures is true and I've not had time to elaborate it, the problem we face today is the world around us operates with an utterly incorrect anthropology and has built a society on a fundamentally incoherent anthropology that man is born free and everywhere is in chains. It's complete rubbish, but it grips the imagination and the intuitions. The church can build a society, the church, on a correct anthropology. And ultimately that has to be more compelling because it's more true. This approach, I think, is certainly hinted at in the second century Christian literature, the Greek apologists. They don't spend their time bashing Roman culture. They spend their time trying to persuade the emperor that leave Christians alone and we will be the best citizens. And thereby witness to Rome concerning its inadequacies. A similar uh, note is picked up by St. Augustine. 
in the city of God. It's a massive book, but if you read only one part, you read book 19. That's the key book in Augustine's city of God. When he outlines the connection between what we would call, I suppose, the secular world and the spiritual world. The secular world and the sacred world. And I've told, been told on numerous occasions, well, your view of uh, uh, your view of this is defeatist. No, it isn't. I'm not saying retreat from the world. We've all got mortgages, student loans, etc., etc. We're not part of the world, but we can be an alternative community within the world. Yeah, and just because you've got 40 guys on Facebook shouting about theonomy, that doesn't mean you're making any impact whatsoever. It doesn't mean you're making any impact whatsoever. You can't even get a Supreme Court justice, please. We've got to refocus on the world. Jesus isn't taking over Congress anytime soon, I don't think. Most of us, I used to lament this in my congregation. I had people in my congregation spend all their days on Twitter insulting other people in a desperate attempt to influence them. And I've never understood how really insulting people is a way of bringing them over to your side. Okay? Never worked in the Reformation. Maybe it'll work today. There's not a lot of evidence for that. Spending all their days trying to influence people they didn't know, whom they'd never meet, and over whom they could never have any influence, and neglecting to have influence over the people they sat next to on a Sunday by being good role models, by mentoring and tutoring. I think we need to think about that. You and I are never going to change Congress, but we can change our local communities by having an influence on the real people that come in and out of our lives. And is it defeatist? Well, I've said to students, you know, I say, use your historical sense and tell me what comes after the second century. And I say, don't overthink it. Somebody brought up the, the third century. Absolutely. I said, and what comes after the third century? Don't overthink it. The fourth century. Absolutely. By the end of the fourth century, Christianity is the dominant force in the Roman Empire. Now, the Greek apologists didn't live to see that. I don't think I'm going to live to see any major transformation in Western society. But I don't think that stops me having the responsibility here and now of doing things that could bear fruit 200 years down the line. Next point. <clears throat> Teach the whole counsel of God. I think one of the temptations of a time of great flux is that we can have our imagination seized by the issues of the moment, and we can put all our energies into that. And there's a sense, I think, where every time brings its own challenges that need to be addressed. In 1517, it is right that Luther addresses the issues of indulgences. It would be a waste of time to do that today because it's not an issue. But it was right that Luther focused on that in 1517. It's right today that we think about the trans moment and same-sex marriage and all of these other things because they're creating peculiar challenges in our day and generation. But there is a danger that we can become so preoccupied with the specifics that we lose sight of that bigger mandate to teach the whole counsel of God. Why do I think transgenderism is wrong? Because I have a grand scheme of what reality is about, grounded in my understanding of the whole counsel of God, which means this particular issue can be dealt with relative to the whole. 
remember some years ago, it was mooted, uh, somebody mooted me, do we need to add a chapter to the Westminster Confession on gay marriage? And I said, no, it, it might be useful for the church to produce a report to help pastors pastorally negotiate the issue. But the Westminster Standards are pretty clear on what marriage is, and they exclude all other forms of marriage implicitly. We need to be careful we don't end up doing a kind of theological whack-a-mole. And always trying to address the issue of the day, and things move so fast, that by certainly in the OPC, by the time we've addressed it, you know, a 30-year study committee or something, goodness knows what we're pressing on the church at that point. Teach people the whole counsel of God, because then we equip people to handle the specific problems that pop up in their lives. The chaotic nature of the times is no excuse for abandoning the church's task of teaching people the whole counsel of God. It's why I think creeds and confessions are so useful and helpful. Because, you know, time is a great corroder of rubbish. And if a confession has stood the test of time, there's probably a reason for that. If it's spoken to generation after generation, there's probably a reason for that. And I don't know many of you, and perhaps some of you come from churches that don't have, don't adhere to a historic creed or confession. It's not sinful to do that. It's not sinful not to have a creed or confession. But I think you might find it helpful given the chaos of our times, to have some broader historical anchor to allow you to guide how you think about teaching and priorities in the current day. A pedagogical strategy built upon documents that strive to cover the whole counsel of God, I think might prove peculiarly helpful. I would not teach a course on sexuality in church. I'd teach a course on creation and anthropology in order to equip people to think about issues of sexuality against the backdrop of God's broader counsel and plan. Next point, shape intuitions. And so, you know, Truman spent a lot of time saying, the problem is the way we instinctively or intuitively think about the world. How do we get at that? Biblical worship. Expressive individualism is problematic because it offers a particular view of that inner space. Inner space is there though, we know that as Christians and its intuitions need to be shaped. Praise. Don't think we should underestimate the power of poetry and the power of music. Uh, in some ways, I'm not a big uh, Wagner fan at all, but there is one scene in Wagner's opera, The Valkyrie, that is peculiarly powerful. Comes at the, towards the end of Act 3, right at the very end, and uh, Wotan, the king of the gods, has been betrayed by his daughter, Brunhilde, uh, and he has to punish her. And the punishment is he's going to kiss her, and he's going to take away her divinity, and she's going to fall asleep and fall back onto her bed, and then flames are going to rise, and she's going to be kept in limbo until the hero can arise to, to get through the flames. You think about the scene. Botan is king of the gods, and he's being betrayed. He feels angry. He's a father, and he's being betrayed, and he feels angry. But he also loves his daughter, and he loves her powerfully, and he's also brokenhearted. 
and the challenge, of course, for any dramatist is how on earth do you communicate that on stage? You can't do it using mere prose, I don't think. I don't even think you can do it using poetry. Poetry is amazing because it bends language to do things that mere prose can't do. What you have in this scene is this incredible combination of dramatic action, poetry, and music. And it's very, very powerful. You can be swept away by it. I remember listening to it in the car once. And I said to my wife, why don't you think of that? And she said, what's going on? And I said, Votan, king of the gods, betrayed her. She said, he should have let her off. I said, you can't do that. I said, he's a tragic god. This is what tragic gods do. <laughs> they act tragic. He should have forgiven that. Man, like, do I know who you are? You know, do you have feelings? Did the music not tear your heart out? Well, seriously, when you go, when you think about worship, though, how do we shape intuitions? I think through worship, through careful choice of the words that are sung and the music that accompanies them. And please don't take that again as a, you know, he's now going to come out swinging for the Trinity Psalter, which happens to happen to love, the Trinity Psalter. It's not a contemporary versus traditional argument. And again, it may look different in different cultures. But what it is to say is we do need to take seriously the words that are sung and the music they're sung to. And we need to make sure that they are shaping the intuitions of people in an appropriate biblical way. Again, go back to what I said last night, it's why I'm a big fan of psalm singing. I'm not an exclusive psalmist. I've been an elder in an exclusive psalmy church in my time. And I had to make sure when I took the vow that I was merely agreeing to uphold the form of worship within the denomination, that I was not condemning good friends in other denominations who sang hymns and choruses, etc., etc. But I do think good psalm singing should be at the heart of every church today. Partly because they teach us how to lament. And I think it is a time for lamentation. But also because I think the psalms are a perfect blend of the inner space brought into conformity with the Word and the will of God. Psalms present a view of the Christian life that is marked by joy, but which also knows sorrow and loss. The Psalms set the struggle of the present in the context of God's great actions in the past and promises for the future. If, as I think we are, heading into a time where we're all going to be strangers in a strange land, that's the burden of many of the Psalms, isn't it? By setting forth a grand picture of God and the promise of future rest, they help us keep perspective, theological and emotional, on the events of the present. We are creatures of emotions and sentiments, and we're fallen. Therefore, we need songs of redemption to help to restore those emotions to their proper context. I would also suggest my next point, and this is a little more controversial, but I stand by it. I think that we need to think more about natural law. Immediately, the sort of theologically reforms that our Truman's about to argue for sort of autonomous human reason. No. I'm about to argue that actually the world has a moral shape. 
And when you contradict that moral shape, you get into trouble. Where do I see natural law coming into play? I see natural law really as being primarily helpful within the context of faith, among those who accept the authority of God's revelation. I get asked on occasion by students, you know, what's the position, what's the Bible's position on homosexuality? I think it's far more straightforward to explain than some people would now claim. I explain it to the students, and these are good Christian students, and that's typically enough for them. But I know that at the back of their mind, there's a kneeling question. I know the Bible teaches that, but does the Bible teach that because God just wants my gay friends to be miserable and unhappy? Is it because God is a nasty piece of work that he's decided this kind of behavior is wrong? And that's where I think natural law arguments become helpful. Because as I mentioned last night, if you can take these kids who accept the Bible's teaching but may struggle with it, and you can give them evidence that indicates that actually the Bible says this, and the Bible says this because guess what? This is the structure of the world that God created in accordance with his character. And if you contravene it, you will get into trouble. And here are the statistics that show some of the kinds of trouble you can get into. I think that helps. I think that helps. Teaching people the Bible is absolutely non-negotiable. Helping people see that the Bible makes sense is also very important as well. And finally, I'll pick up on the distinction, a very helpful distinction my friend Rod Dreher makes. Uh, Rod sends out his email blast every afternoon about five past three. I remember saying to him, every day at about three o'clock, I'm feeling pretty good, you know, most of the day's work is over, looking forward to going home and putting my feet up. And then your pallet of daily articles arrived. And I realized, no, the world really is much, much worse than even I thought it was. Uh, I said, you're such a pessimist. And he said, I'm not a pessimist. I said, come on, you're a pessimist. And he said, no. He said, I do think the world's bleak. But I have hope. And Rod sets it up in this way, that the, the Christian's option is neither optimism nor despair, but hope. And what is hope? Well, what is, let me say, what is pessimism first? Unremitted bleakness. What is optimism? That's the kind of polyamory, if you've ever seen that old Hayley Mills movie. Polyamory is the quintessential optimist. If you uh, ever read Dickens, Mr. McCorber in David Copperfield, who always thinks that, you know, something's going to turn up. It's Dickens, so something does, of course, eventually turn up for Mr. McCorber. But this idea that, well, it'll all be okay in the end if we just have faith and hang on and hope in That's not an option either. Christian hope is realistic. It understands that the world in which we now live is a veil of tears. It understands that the world in which we now live is not the Christian home. That is not to say that we should not be grateful for the things we have now. I'm glad to live in America rather than China or North Korea. I'm glad that I have access to good health care. I'm glad and grateful that I have a job I enjoy and I have a loving family. And I pray that such things will continue for me and be the experience of others as well. 
But I'm also aware that the world is fallen, that these good things I enjoy are the gift of God and will not continue forever, even in this life. We all lose loved ones. We all experience decline to our own death, of course. And that means that when things go awry or when we're faced with changes that bring suffering to us or to our loved ones, or society at large, we must not despair. We must work to the best of our abilities to right these wrongs, but we must remember that the real meaning of life, my life and that of you, is not found in the here and now, but in the hereafter. Suffering here and now may at times be terrible, even unbearable, but it is never meaningless. It finds its meaning in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and future return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to end today. I want to suggest that what we're facing in the United States is certainly something we should lament. But it should not lead us to despair. There's hope because God's promises are so strong. And God's promises were never about the United States anyway. They were about the church and about God's kingdom. I would also suggest, having laid all this out, that it would be sad, therefore, if all we do in this current situation is despair. Because despair is a very passive thing. Very passive if there's earthly hope, perhaps it's this. The history, certainly, of my own nation, and perhaps of Europe in general, is this. Marginal communities become strong communities. Uh, I grew up, I was born, I grew up in the West Country, but I was born in Birmingham. Birmingham was the centre of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century in England. The names of the factories and some of the towns and areas nearby where I grew up were named after the great industrialists of the 19th century. And many of them were Quakers. The Quakers were a marginal community. In England, really up until the middle of the 19th century, if you were not an Anglican, if you were a Roman Catholic or a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Unitarian or a Quaker, you could not go to university, you could not hold a teaching job, you could not become a member of parliament, you could not be a civil servant, you could not vote. You were marginal. What could you do? You could be a strong marginal community and you could make stuff. And that's what the Quakers did. They made great chocolate, as it happens. Much of the greatest chocolate in the world was produced by Quakers. The church has earthly hope, it's this. The marginalization of our generation might actually be a tremendous opportunity to become a powerful community that will communicate the gospel and the gospel way of living to the next generation and the generation after that. And that's an opportunity, I think, painful as it is, for which we should be grateful. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Truman. You know, this last lecture was the final realization to me. I, I was already there, but it was the final realization that I'll never be able to do this kind of analysis that you just did. When I see the, um, you did a, a, a 
wonderful world word picture of the Valkyries and so on. When I say the Valkyries, the only thing that comes to mind is Bugs Bunny. Alright, so let's start with this one, Dr. Truman. Uh, the question asks you to speak to parents. If we live in a world that's fundamentally changed, that has fundamentally changed its view of sex and self, how do we teach our children to live biblically in the world that they've been born into? More specifically, how and at what age do we introduce them to these topics you've spoken on? That's a good question. I'm going to do this sort of, I'm going to start with a pastoral cop-out slash qualification. And that's to say that every situation is different and therefore it's, it's often different, difficult to give a single rule that should be applied in every single circumstance. Because different people face different issues. But I would say there are a few basic things. First of all, uh, I think it is a lethal assumption to think that the most influential people in your children's lives are the people they actually meet. I don't think that if you send your kids to Christian school or you homeschool, it's it's foolish to think that the teachers there or the kids that are being there are the most significant influences in their life. I think smartphones are the most influential things in young people's lives today. So I think the first thing parents should do is not allow their kids to have smartphones. And you say, well, my kids are going to complain and cry. Well, big deal. You're a parent and they're a kid. And your job is not to be their friend. Your job is to prepare them for life in the real world in the future. I'm conscious in saying that that I never faced that challenge because my kids, praise God, uh, were born early enough to avoid smartphones. But no kid needs a smartphone. I grew up without one. <laughs> and the world, you know, seemed to be just fine. Now, I understand that kids need access to the internet for schooling and things like that, but I think not in a private space they don't. Not that you're not breathing down their neck, they don't. Uh, that's hard, and it makes parenting today much harder than it was for my wife and myself. But that's an important thing. So I think the first thing is a negative thing. And that is make sure that you are mitigating the influences of YouTube, TikTok, etc., etc., on their lives. And the best way to do that is not to allow them to have things that give them free, private access to that stuff. Secondly, when Judy raised and discussed these questions, I, I, I grew up in an English family. I don't think my parents ever talked to me about this. And uh, I do remember, I went to an old boys' school watching a weird movie in a biology class where we had to sit and watch rabbits mating on the screen of the TV. And the teacher never explained to us exactly what was going on. So asking the English guy how to engage in sex education with your kids, that's not a good idea on the whole. Uh, but I would suggest when you do it, it needs to be done in the context of the whole council of God. It needs to be done against that anthropological background that sets sexual activity in the context of God's plan for sexual activity, which is the seal on a unique, lifelong, monogamous relationship. And I think, therefore, it should be done using some good Christian books on this material. I think we are seeing now the emerging of some, some excellent books on this. 
I would recommend for parents of teenagers, uh, there's a book by, he's actually a Roman Catholic, but he wrote the book in a mere Christian way. He actually says in the introduction, I've written this book in a mere Christian way so that you know, Protestants can use it. There's a book by a guy called Christopher West. And the title is, Our Bodies Tell God's Story. Now, to those who are sort of savvy and in the know about what's going on, Christopher West is, is arguing for what's called the theology of the body. You don't need to know that term to read the book and appreciate it, because what West does is he makes a brilliant case for the physiology of the human body being a good guide to what is and is not appropriate sexual behaviour. So I'd say get hold of literature like that. And then, of course, the most important thing is make sure your kids are in church on Sunday sitting under consistent preaching of the Word. Uh, God uses the preaching of the Word to transform hearts. Your kids don't need to have heard sermons on sexual behaviour to have had their hearts transformed in a way that will make them instinctively suspicious of stuff that's bad. But they need, to, they need to be under the sound of the word in order for that to take place. So I'd say all of those things. Uh, next one. Some Reformed churches experience blessed communion on Sunday, but check that fellowship at the door on the way out for the rest of the week. How can we remedy this? Again, it's one of those, I'm not sure there's a one-size-fits-all answer because it might be very different in a place where all the congregants live very close together. As opposed to, I think, as you said in your church, people come from, from miles around. Uh, I'm not sure what it looks like, but I think it has to arise out of a proactive cultivation of friendships within the congregation that go beyond the, the Sunday service. Uh, that might take the form of congregational meals. It might take the form of informal get-togethers during the week. Uh, I just think we need to be more proactive in pursuing friendship and fellowship outside. I certainly think that hospitality should be a key component of that. Uh, one of the things my wife and I missed during COVID and we're just getting back to doing now is we love to open our home up for students from college. And consistently the students say to us, the thing that was most important about our college experience was not what went on in the classroom. It was the professors who opened their homes to us and allowed us just to come and hang out at their homes and have dinner and chat, etc., etc. And I think that speaks to the power of hospitality. So I think churches need to think about hospitality, particularly relative to single people. Uh, and I'm not a huge fan. Uh, I like him as a person, but I'm not a huge fan of some of the writings of Wesley Hill, uh, who's connected to Revoice and things like that that are proving very controversial in some denominations. Uh, but I was very touched by an article he wrote, moved by an article he wrote some years ago as a single person, and saying what a difference it made for him when a couple in the congregation not only opened their home to him to give him hospitality, but did it on a day which would typically have been a day for family. I can't remember if it was Thanksgiving or Christmas Day or something like that. And his point was, it wasn't just they opened up their home on a Sunday. A lot of people do that. They brought me into an intimate family moment at that point, and that made a huge difference. And credit to him for, I would not have thought of that. Uh, credit to him for highlighting that as an important thing. So I think community could look different things in different places, but hospitality has to lie at the heart of it. 
Do you see the mental health community as a potential ally for the church? Or is the recent cultural emphasis on psychological therapy purely antithetical to the biblical idea of universal outward moral obligation? Hmm. I, I, I think it's hard. when you talk about the mental health community, I think it's more diverse than we give it credit for. One of the things that uh, Abigail Schreier's book uh, helped me understand was actually not all mental health professionals are on board with the trans movement. It's just that those who aren't on board with it are being silenced and frightened out of the profession. So, can the mental health community be helpful to the church? Certainly when I was a pastor, my first, whenever somebody came to me with what I thought were signs of depression, uh, not only did I try to, to talk them you know, to point them to biblical passages, etc., etc. I always suggested they went to see their GP as well, in order to find out, you know, is there something biological going on that's causing you to feel the way you are? Worst case scenario, is there a brain tumor there or something like that? So I think that uh, mental health professionals can be of service to the church. intimates making deliberate privations now. Do you see clear areas where this applies to the church? I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Okay, questioner, you need to send us uh, an explanation of your question. Um, I'm not quite sure what's meant by privations there. That's what I'm wanting clarification. Happy to answer the question, just need clarification on We'll see if you can understand what it says. Okay. That was my question. I don't mind saying that. Okay, well, by privations, I mean refraining from certain things. So when you brought up the point of um, sort of the Middle Ages and those eras and how just the lack of technology, there was yeah. more deliberate hardship. I mean, it wasn't deliberate. There was forced hardships. Yeah. But with the advance of technology and how just easy everything is, do we need to, in certain regards, maybe actively deprive ourselves? Okay. So, yeah. like, you know, uh, binging shows is a reality now. Hours mm. just gone. Yeah. Is it something that maybe we ought to? as a community, as a body, you know, say like, maybe this is something that really we need to look at and say, is this glorifying God or, you know, something better be done here? Yeah, I think certainly it's something we need to think critically about. Again, it may look different for different people, depending on what your weaknesses or preferences are. One thing that I certainly think is, uh, well, one thing that surprised me recently was reading an article that said that architects in America typically aren't building houses or designing many houses with dining rooms anymore because sitting around a table and having dinner has disappeared. Most people now sit in front of the television and eat dinner. Now, do I ever sit in front of the television and eat dinner? Yes, I do. But I think that three or four times a week, my wife and I, even though we're now on our own, try to make a point of sitting at the table and eating dinner. Uh, I, I think that that might be, as you would put it, a privation. Okay, as a family, we're going to switch off the television. I mean, when I was growing up, we never did anything other than eat at the table. 
Dad came home from work, we sat down at the table, we ate dinner, and then we were allowed to watch television after Dad had watched the news. Uh, and I think that one privation might be the reinstitution of corporate family mealtimes. Uh, one of the things I always struggle with with American sport is Football games four hours. I don't want to spend, I love rugby, I don't want to spend four hours of my weekend watching rugby. I don't get many hours off. I want to, I, I want to use them as, as, as well as I can. I think that an awful lot of time is, yeah, is spent watching junk, which could be spent reading books. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to say to my life, now, okay, I've got 20 years left. Uh, I like long plane fights because, wow, I can sit and read a book that I may not find time to read during the week. Yeah. So I think, I, I wouldn't put it so much in terms of privation as in critical thinking about how to use time. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right, great, next one. Yeah. In X24, before Felix, Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Is this a reasonable apologetic pattern for engaging the culture today? I don't see why not. Again, I think apologetics, what arguments you use, what approach you use, might well depend on who, who you're facing and what their particular issues or questions are. But I certainly think that the pointing to eternity, pointing towards judgment, that should be part of what's done. Yeah, that's the question. This one's long, so I'm going to break them in part. I hope that uh, it's, it's helpful. It comes from a group of teachers in a local um, high school. It says round one, but the round two never came, so I don't know if round two. But, uh, to what extent is the tarnishing of the identity made institutions of religion, family, and nation the result of these things growing to idolatrous proportions when they are not subordinated to the love of God? When such things when such a thing takes place, isn't the proper Christian attitude to topple them? Or can things as important as these be redeemed once tarnished? Mm, good question. I think the, the story of the, the decline of the authority of those institutions is a complicated one. And certainly internal corruption plays a significant role. Uh, the, the Catholic child abuse scandal, for example, uh, has tarnished the reputation of the church in general because a lot of people don't make the, the distinctions that those of us in particular denominations make. They just see it as the church in general. But I do think there's been a campaign in the broader culture going back to at least the 18th century that has sought to present the church in a ridiculous and corrupt light in the popular imagination. So it's a combination of internal and external factors. Should the church uh, be engaged in toppling these things? I'm always hesitant about the language of toppling. It doesn't seem to me that because the family is corrupted, it needs to be toppled, it needs to be reformed. Uh, you know, if we're looking at toppling, it's a little bit like what's going on in wider American culture where, you know, you have the Declaration of Independence and you have those who are saying, uh, well, it was never properly applied, Therefore, it's not worth believing in. And I think that's different than saying, well, it was never properly applied, so we need to properly apply it. And I think the same applies to the family. I don't think you topple the family because 
it is basic that, that human beings are born dependent upon parents. There's a natural law argument, and I think there is a biblical rationale for seeing the family's importance. What we need is mothers and fathers who take their responsibilities seriously and behave as Christians in marriage relative to themselves and towards their children. Uh, the nation might be trickier because you know, the nation is not, I think the family is a hardly perennial of human existence. The nation is a relative newcomer on the sea, in certainly the way that we understand it. But I think it's proved to be a good thing on the whole, certainly in the West, for the organization of human societies. The organization of nations and law and order has served to protect the innocent and the weak. Uh, I think the nation can be a good thing. And I would draw a distinction between nationalism and patriotism. I think nationalism is a bad thing. Nationalism implies a sneering uh, of other nations and a belief in one's own chauvinistic superiority over other nations. But patriotism, as in love of one's country, can be a good thing. I would use an analogy to marriage. I might say to you, my wife is the most beautiful person in the world. Um, beautiful woman in the world, and I genuinely mean that and believe it. But I'm not insulting every other woman in the world when I say that. You know that I'm not doing that. Just because I say my wife is the most beautiful woman in the world, I'm not saying that Tito's wife isn't the most beautiful woman in the world, or your wife isn't the most beautiful woman in the world. I'm making a point about my relationship to my wife. I'm not making a point about other wives. And I think what we need to do, uh, as far as the nation is concerned, is to realize place is important. Historical narratives are important. They provide a distinct part of our identity. For a Christian, it should never be identified with the Christian identity or allowed to overwhelm the Christian identity. But is a good and useful thing in and of itself. Paul called on his Roman citizenship when it was convenient for him to do so. So I think that the nation needs to be, I don't think it needs to be toppled, but I think we need to set it in its right place within God's scheme. And as for the church, would that our problem was that we idolised the church. I don't think, I've not come across many people who idolise the church, occasionally a denomination perhaps, but most people see the church as an add-on extra to their Christian life, rather than the be-all and end-all of their Christian life. So I'm not convinced, actually, that the idolatry of the church has been a particular player in the collapse of the authority of the church. Yeah, in the context of, of all that you said concerning the romantics, can they be seen as allies in retrieving the natural law tradition, would they at times be seen as a kind of enemy of my enemy? I think so. But one of the things that I think that, that Christians often, one of the ways that Christians read contemporary culture that I think is mistaken, is we often tend to think of contemporary culture as a fight between believers and unbelievers. And what I say to my students at Grove is this, it's not a two-way fight, it's a three-way fight. And the struggle is between believers, what I would call humanists, and I would include most of the romantics in the humanist section, and anti-humanist Nietzscheans, influenced by Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, 
And I would say it's interesting, depending on what question you ask, because it depends on, it will shape how the fight shapes up. If, for example, you say, uh, is there, is, is, is human nature a force for good? The humanists will say yes. The Christians and the anti-humanist Nietzscheans will say no. Christians because it's fallen, anti-humanist Nietzscheans because they think human beings are dark and driven by desire for power. If you ask the question, is there such a thing as God? Then the humanists side with the Nietzscheans against the Christians. And they'll say, no, there is no such thing as God. If you ask the question about whether there is such a thing as morality, the Christians will side with the humans. The Christians will say, and the humanists will both say, yes, murder is wrong. When you think about the battle in the modern world as being a three-way fight rather than a two-way fight, then I think we begin to see that actually, on, on any given issue, we may find common cause with the humanists or with the Nietzschean anti-humanists. And on the issue of morality, I would say, yes, Rousseau is a repellent human being who doesn't live by his own moral standards. But when he makes arguments about morality involves empathy, morality is empathetic, he's stating something that's true there. If you look out the window and see somebody being beaten up, and you need to Google what to do, you think there's a psychopath. Or if you only go out to help them because you feel obliged to do it because the law tells you to do it, then we regard you as morally less than the person who immediately feels empathy for the victim and moves out to help them. And I would say that on, on issues of morality, if you are talking to a humanist, you might be able to find common ground in order to talk about and think through some of these, these issues. And that's where the gay marriage debate is interesting, because not all opponents of gay marriage are Christians or even religious. There are some who believe, even some LGBTQ people who believe that traditional family is good because it provides a stable structure that no other relationship can provide. And I'm happy to stand shoulder to shoulder with those people on that issue. I apologize for all the other questions that we're not going to be able to get to. I have one last and we'll end with this one. Uh, it was under the influence of your teaching that I came to appreciate the embrace and ordinary means of grace understanding the Christian ministry. With that said, during last night's Q&A, it seemed like you were pitting the ordinary means of grace against a one another kind of ministry in which Christian, Christians carry one another's burdens through open and I dare say vulnerable relationships. Do you think this has to be the case? In my experience, Presbyterians in general aren't doing that well with personal relationships. Would this be due to an imbalanced view of this issue? It could be. I think a lot of this comes down to personality and cultural background. Uh, I think bearing with one another's burdens does not need to be understood in a way where everybody's telling everybody what their problems are and being vulnerable. Uh, and I wouldn't pit the two against each other because I would see the bearing of one another's burdens as perhaps often being a private thing. When somebody comes to you privately and says, I've got an issue, I've got a problem, can you help me? And certainly I've done that with other people when I've been under pressure on certain points. My instinct is not to stand in front of the church and be vulnerable. My instinct is to go to a Christian friend 
and I hate the word vulnerable, but be vulnerable there and, and seek help from a Christian friend on that front. So I would say the public ministry of the church is ordinary means of grace, but that does not exclude bearing each other's burdens, but I think that is often best done in a more personal, intimate kind of way than in the public worship of the, the church, if that makes sense. Thank you. Thank you all for your patience oh, and your bearing with us on Saturday night. It was for a great lecture. I hope you were blessed by it. Uh, those of you who were with us for our annual dinner, uh, we were able to raise $6,000 uh, $6, for uh, our new building, and we were very excited uh, about that. Um, our next year's lecture series is going to be in April, Lord willing. Uh, our speaker will be Chad Benedictsworn. Uh, he's done some very serious work in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, the date's not completely uh, set yet, and, but uh, we'll try to get the word out uh, to all of you. Uh, I know we most, a lot of us are Presbyterians. Let's give uh, Dr. Truman.